0: Duran Frazier. In 1999, he launched his first startup during college selling land on eBay. Through this experience, he learned about commercial development, alternative energies, mining, and eventually grew his land portfolio to over 40,000 acres, all while running a summer surf camp with friends and helping to manage the U.S. surf team for Dakine. After a successful endeavor selling land over the internet for over a decade, he rolled his proceeds into several startups started to incubate ventures, and has also started a startup himself. He's focused on consumer goods, the sports tech, and the digital marketing space. Duran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for uh, having me. appreciate it. It's good to have you on here. I'm excited to chat. We met, Duran and I met through a mutual acquaintance, Paul Ang, who I've gotten to know a little bit through my blog on the circle of competence. And so I'm, I'm grateful for, for Paul making the introduction because as everybody's going to hear, Duran's got a crazy story and one that's both inspirational and, and there's a lot of lessons that we can learn and he, he's going to be willing to share. We've chatted before the podcast, but I'm excited to dig in. So Duran, why don't you just give us your background, dig in a little bit more and fill in some of the gray spaces that I left
1: out. Uh, thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. I just, you know, for me, it's always enjoyable to tell my story. I think I have, uh, you know, some, some good ideas of what not to do uh, more than what to do. But I always enjoy speaking about the failures in my life. Um, but going back to it, um, I grew up kind of a vagabond of sorts. I, I traveled quite a bit as a child. My family, my mom and dad are both from South Africa. Uh, my mom actually um, had my sister and I here on vacation in the U.S., and, uh, and then we moved, we went back to South Africa, grew up there between there and, and, uh, and Southern California uh, for quite, for quite a few years. And so I never really spent uh, much time uh, at, at one school. In fact, uh, I went to, uh, I think 12 or 13 different schools growing up. So it kind of taught me a lot of uh, leadership skills and, and, you know, obviously that builds character as well. Uh, there's some negatives and positives to that, of, of course, but, so did that and, uh, and spent, uh, spent my, my, I spent most of my youth in Southern California, and I started my first job at the age of 12 with a paper route, uh, not because of choice, but circumstance. My mom, uh, unfortunately, was not able to make enough money to pay ends meet, so I had to help her out, uh, which again, that's a, a big character builder in my life and something I look back on and really appreciate having the opportunity to do. Uh, in high school, um, I was very entrepreneurial. Uh, my senior year of high school, I was, I was actually flying back and forth from San Diego to San Francisco, helping tear down a shortwave radio station and with, with a dream of eventually becoming an engineer. That was a short-lived dream, obviously, but something I uh, at the time enjoyed. And, uh, and then went to college down at a school called Point Loma Nazarene in Point Loma, San Diego. Uh, which was one of the most incredible campuses on planet earth and very blessed to get into that school. I'm not sure how I did looking back on my GPA, but anyway, that was uh, a great learning experience for me. I was, uh, I, I really took to surfing. I actually was able to start surfing when I was about 15 or 16 in high school, but really got into it in college. And I loved, you know, I, I've always been one of those people that, if I want to learn something, surround myself with the best people. And, and thankfully, at Point Loma, I had a chance to surf with some of the best people in the world. Uh, we had one of the most, I think we had the best surf team, college surf team on the planet at the time with some really talented surfers and that are still great friends of mine. And so, you know, I've always been, uh, I've always, you know, with anything business or, or, uh, or sports, wanted to surround myself with guys that could help me accelerate and learn. And so, um, you know, fast forward, moved to Hawaii for a year, uh, spent some time there, uh, running, uh, managing a surf shop and also, uh, helping, uh, a young boy with cerebral palsy, which I did for about a year, um, kind of helping him take him to school. And I was his aide, And that was a very grounding experience for me. Moved back to San Diego. Um, uh, and then 1998 turned 21. And my grandfather for my 21st birthday gave me a piece of land, a quick claim deed, for a property that he was just tired of paying $5 a year in property tax for. And so listening to Napster one day, um, really diving into what Robert Kiyosaki had to say, I kind of had an epiphany that maybe I could sell this land on eBay. So I put on eBay, I made, I decorated a listing, put some information on the property and it sold for $800. And that was sort of my launching point into reserve land management. Took me into multiple property, uh, property auctions um, over the next, call it a year and a half to two years. Um, I, I was literally flying in and out of New Mexico from San Diego every, I would say every three weeks to a month and, and really just building that land portfolio up and, and finding properties that I could flip and uh, eventually took me to the state of Nevada where I began acquiring large chunks of land, um, getting that land uh, surveyed and, and basically cut up into smaller pieces and sold and ran that business for about 10 years, which uh, eventually got me into solar, geothermal and mining. Well, you're officially my, my favorite
0: South African entrepreneur now ahead of Elon Musk. So <laughs> we'll just make that official. I, loved, I love your story because to me, it, it sounds like the true entrepreneur's story of seizing whatever opportunities are in front of you. And so I want to dive into the land business. And how did you, when you sold the first piece of land for 800 bucks, what was the second deal? The third deal. Just tell us the progression and how did you, how did you know that that could that could be a viable business?
1: You know, I guess that's sort of the drive and determination of of an entrepreneur. Like when you see an opportunity uh, and you realize that there's some there's something there, uh, and it's just like anything I do today. If if there's opportunity, and I I will I will dig in, uh, and I I generally just do my best to quickly understand if there's something there, and if not, I'm, i you know I move on to the next thing. But uh, in this situation, I was 21 years old and, you know, 800 bucks for me was, you know, that could help me perpetuate my my uh, surfing around the world, which was my dream. And uh, and so I, you know, I, I just happened to find out that, that New Mexico was the only state that had these property tax auctions online. And so I, was, I knew I was onto something. And when I flew out, I actually met four or five of the original sort of pioneers of land selling on eBay. And I was the one young guy who was who knew how to write some code. So I was doing the HTML listings for eBay. And those guys were all leaning on me. And so we all became this sort of, you know, you know, group of really sharp, you know, real estate guys that and I, I wasn't sharp. I was just a young guy learning from them, but you know, going across the country and buying land at tax auctions. So that's kind of how it started. And uh, and going into my first deal, I really I don't remember a whole lot. I just remember putting it up there. Putting the quick quick claim deed together, figuring out how to do it. You know, I didn't know anything about a quick claim deed. I didn't know I didn't know the process. Learning it all, and then obviously replicating that once I got to that next property tax auction where I was able to acquire six to eight lots.
0: Let's get into the auction. So, so your business model originally was buying like foreclosed or ta- you know properties with tax liens, or basically properties that had been taken over by the by the city or county just for lack of Correct. paying taxes. Yeah, so.
1: so there's uh, there's lien and deed states across the country New Mexico happens to be a deed state so if someone stops paying their taxes after a certain amount of years those properties then go to tax auctions at which point the owner um, can buy or or the I'm sorry the um, the at the auction that property is auctioned off and the, and the buyer owns that property um, there's a short window where uh, I believe the uh, the, ta- the 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 um person can actually come back and pay their taxes but uh for the most part it's a short window never happened and that was sort of the model so buy 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 low and sell high was the model i think i've i've been really good at flipping that model on buying high and selling low as of late
0: <laughs> well it's it, it certainly is to your point it is hard to find good deals nowadays and i i don't i don't uh, i don't buy land myself but i mean uh, I do know that there are quite a lot of people who have been getting into that uh, as of late. I'm curious, what makes a piece of land desirable? Because I've, I've never bought land or flipped it. I am in the real estate business. I've invested a little bit into small rentals, and then I work in the commercial development space. But talk about what makes a piece of land desirable, and how do you know you can actually flip it for a profit?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, it, it was, it's hard to really understand the buying persona because everyone is so different, right? Some people just wanted land in Nevada and they, and they would call it their home for tax purposes. Other people would, you know, would, would find a place. They just wanted to be off the grid, park an RV and go hang out there for a month out of the year. So we had a lot of different, there was a lot of different reasons. And some was just pure, they want, it was just real estate ownership, right? But, you know, it's the, the American dream is to own real estate. And so people would just buy a a chunk of real estate. And if, if they could buy 40 acres for, call it eight to 10 grand, I mean, for them, it was, you know, peanuts to own a big chunk of ground.
0: Right. And so you were just basically taking this for, you know, the tax auction, the tax auction, maybe a grand or two grand and flipping it for eight or 10. Is that kind of the
1: model? And then just based on volume, doing deals that way? Correct. That was, that was, that was pretty much the business model. Buying, uh, you know, buying the margins were great back then. Obviously, the, the, the benefit I had was, uh, obviously, eBay was really new. So, um, and, and one unique thing about about eBay was there and I don't know if it's changed because I don't do much business on there anymore, but uh, it was $99 to list a piece of land. So, if I sold it for 10, I sold properties for 10, 15, 20, $30,000 for cash, and it would cost me 99 bucks to sell it. So, so it was really unique in that, and then there was other platforms as well. a uh, Platform called Bid for Assets, which we also used, uh, and just great platforms that were that we could we could list for a fee. I think Bid for Assets charged us a lot more from a from a commission perspective, but still the value was there, and and there was enough margin for that. So, uh, so it was really unique in that in that you know the internet still new, uh, realist sort of sort of merging that you know that internet, the internet with sort of this modern day way of selling real estate.
0: Talk about how and why you, you grew the portfolio to, to 40,000 plus acres from more of a
1: transactional model. You know, so we, we believed uh, that the initial acquisition we were making was with a private company that had acquired a million acres in Nevada. And we had this opportunity to work with them at a a really, uh, really early on once that acquisition happened and we gained their trust. And so for us, it was about, you know, if we could buy bulk, we could obviously get that price per acre down. And so we were buying in bulk. And we also knew at the time that these counties didn't really have um, much, much regulation on on splitting these properties from 640 acre sections down to 40 acres. Um, sadly, I think I was, I was uh, the reason why they put moratoriums in effect because we were cutting up dozens of sections a year. And for them, it was, I, th- I believe, a risk in terms of emergency services. If you're, you know, 15 miles outside, of, uh, outside a city, um, you're, you know, they still are, I think, required, um, you know, from a, from a county perspective to manage that. So if something happens and they, and they can't access it. So they were, they were putting moratoriums in effect for us eventually. But I just realized that I had to buy a big chunk of acreage. And the way the deal was structured at the time it was really unique. It allowed me to sort of pay off, you know, five or 10 sections at a time um, and then get those subdivided and sell them. Got it. So then you, you transitioned
0: from the transactional model to now we're buying larger sections, subdividing them. Who are you selling those sub, subdivided sections to and were you making land
1: improvements to them? Just talk a little bit about that. I think it's a very similar buying persona, to be honest with you. I think it's those looking at, you know, buying these properties for 10 grand and and, or 15 grand, 20 grand. I mean, 40 acres were selling anywhere from, call it, you know, 8 grand to 25 grand, depending on where they were and and what amenities the property had in terms of what it was utilities or water well. But yeah, rarely did we do um, improvements before we sold. So, we would just basically do a paper subdivision and sell the properties. Um, but we were, we, were, we, were, we were buying properties that had road access. And, um, and so we had properties that were, you know, decent, decent properties and I think attractive in the sense that even a person that was in New York just wanted to have a property, you know, in Nevada and they'd pay the 10 grand for it, um, knowing that they had ownership to this 40 acre piece of property. It's so interesting.
0: It is so interesting. And I, I imagine it's so much more relevant nowadays with COVID and people just kind of, to your point, just wanting to get out of the city. Yeah, I think
1: you're, uh, you're spot on. I think we've, we've definitely seen a very big influx and desire for real estate. I mean, I still own several thousand acres in Nevada today. Uh, but we definitely have, uh, I, I, you know, I think that people really want, you know, obviously, if, if, if close contact spreads COVID, people want to get as far away as they can from people. So, and, and we're just seeing it. I think we're seeing this push to get outside the cities and and there is the ability from you know to be sustainable as long as you have water or a well and you have solar i think a lot of people are seeing that that uh land is actually a pretty viable option right now
0: let's let's dig a little bit deeper into that because for 2000 years cities have more or less continued to to sort of grow you know a percent here a percent there and you compound it over Centuries and centuries, and we've got these megacities of today, right? <clears throat> do you see, do you see the combination, not really of a pandemic, but really the pan of a pandemic and remote work and the internet as a potential equalizer to the city, or is this just like a blip in the road? In your opinion, I'm curious because I know a lot of people fall in different sides of the tracks
1: here. Yeah, you know it's, a, it's really tough because you know you look from a geopolitical standpoint and where things are at. You know with with China, uh, you know, North Korea, Russia, you know, you look at that side of things and you kind of question, well, I just want to have, I just want to have the ability to, um, to, you know, if I need to get off the grid, but the, the grid is pertinent to our lifestyle, right? You, I, you and me, we can't live without it. So, you know, when satellite internet becomes a viable place to go, um, which I think right now I know Viasat, which happens to be a neighbor down the street, and we know them quite well. Um, they're, they're working on some really uh, unique uh, connectivity via satellite that could be cost effective enough for us to really get off the grid. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. We are handcuffed at the moment to the bigger cities. But I think that, that as, as things change, as this, sort of the geopolitics changes outside of COVID, I think people, there is going to be a desire um, to, to get off grid. And of course, I think COVID kind of, you know, escalates that a bit.
0: Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Well, let's, let's transition. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned solar there. So talk about how, talk about your experience with solar and, and how that pairs in with your land business and what you're up to there.
1: Uh, certainly. So, so Nevada is a very interesting state, obviously a ton of sunshine. Uh, we were, you know, early on. I wasn't really looking at solar. Uh, solar was, you know, still, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. There wasn't much happening. I mean, obviously, it was a lot in terms of uh, innovation, but but actual large solar facilities, those didn't really happen toward until like late uh, 2006, 7, 8, uh, and I think uh, I think there was a there was a green initiative by Obama that pushed a lot of that uh, solar kind of the forefront. Uh, Nevada was interesting because there's not a lot of grid in Nevada. So uh, the major grid uh, runs kind of in the central part of the state. Um, and then, of course, through the Reno area. But um, if you drive like the, the Interstate 80 on the north side of, of uh, Nevada, there just isn't a whole lot of grid. And so when we were buying land, we didn't even think about it. But some of the property we bought was sitting on top of substations and grid. And uh, so some of the stuff just kind of popped up. And uh, we started having people contact us about solar. And so we, we started doing a ton of research we, uh, we even did our own interconnect studies on our own land uh, trying to figure out the value and, and in the process learned a ton about energy and utilities. Nevada was at one point it was uh, I think it was Sierra Nevada Energy um, and then it went to became NV Energy, uh, which is now owned by Berkshire, uh, Berkshire Hathaway and so interestingly enough uh, what, what we realized is there's you know without knowing people uh, or having liaison to these energy companies it was it's really difficult to uh, to make these, uh, to get these power purchase agreements in place. Uh, but at the same time, we knew that if, if we kept working on it, we'd have somebody come to us that was in a position to buy the land and do that. So, which we actually did. We we had one particular property uh, that we sold at a, a pretty uh, uh, pretty nice multiple that was on grid um, with, with some real potential. And I think they're actually in the process of securing or may have already secured that uh, PPA.
0: So, for people who are totally out of the loop on how solar works, who the players are, what the value chain is, maybe start with just the land and then what goes on top of the land, who owns what goes on top of the land, how the power is
1: generated, where it goes, and all the players involved, just high level. That's, that's a great question. And, and I'm gonna be totally honest with you. Um, I don't have the, a lot of those answers. I, I was in the business of building what we would call a shovel ready project. Meaning, meaning handing it off to the developer developers, plugging in the solar panels. Um, obviously, I know the process in which you have a negotiated agreement with the power company. You, you whoever the developer is on the project then sells that power, that power back. Um, uh, to the, to that, or, or there's an off taker, like in our, in our case, it may be a mining company that's four or five miles South of our company that they would be an off taker of the energy that you create with that solar. But for the most part, it, it was just for us, it was just creating uh, a shovel ready project to hand off. So I can't give you too many details and, and tell you I'm super knowledgeable there cause I'm not.
0: No, that's that's perfect, though. That's that's a that's a solid high level overview of really, I mean, there's the land player or the landowner, there's the the solar developer, and there's the power companies, the utilities. Yep. So so at this point, you had acquired, you know, multiple 1000s of acres, you know, at the same time, were you noticing that spreads on land flipping were beginning to th- get thinner? Or were you still doing that? Or had you just totally
1: pivoted at this point? So 2006 or seven was when things started getting in very interesting in the land market. I mean, we had, a, I had a really good run for about seven or eight years and Nevada got really interesting because that's that they, several counties obviously were catching on that. I was, I was probably the major land seller in most of the, of most of the Northern Nevada counties and they didn't like it. And I believe that obviously there was, there was one way to combat what I was doing, which was to obviously put a moratorium in effect. So uh, what happened was 2007, I put, they put, there was a major moratorium in several of the counties in uh, northern Nevada, Pershing County, Humboldt County, and then the biggest challenge was I had, a, I had about a 15,000 acre portfolio of land in a, in a county called Lander, Lander County, and they, uh, they made it very difficult to subdivide, and they, they've continued to make it very difficult to subdivide. Um, and so, it, you know, even with roads in place, they, you know, there's just a, an, an extra level that they want you to go through in, in terms of the process of getting, getting these properties cut up. So, um, but 2007 was actually when, when, when the writing was on the wall that things were happening. I mean, literally the, the phone would, would ring nonstop until like mid 2007. And I remember, I almost remember calling it the day, the day it happened. I was like, something's, something's not right. And uh, and so, uh, mid to late 2007, I called up a couple of my financial advisors said, hey, let's go to cash and start buying gold and silver. And they both, they both thought I was crazy. Um, one of them talked me into staying, uh, with most of my equities, uh, and, and focusing on, um, on, you know, not, not going to cash. And, and sadly enough, I lost a lot listening to, to those guys, but, but at the end of the day, I, I actually did. I started pivoting out of land, um, or I'm sorry, out of, out of, uh, the equities markets into, into gold and silver. And, um, and that's when things actually the mining world got re- really interesting for me, and started I started actually digging in and learning a bit a bit more about it. But but uh, come two thousand eight, obviously when the market crashed, I couldn't give my land away. So it really was at that point in time figuring out what the highest and best use of, of the land was. Let's get into that. So uh, you know, so so two thousand eight comes, uh, market crashes. Um, at the at the same time, my wife um, my wife and I had just gotten married, and uh, and we we decided that uh, the honeymoon was a great place to get pregnant. So here we are middle of a middle of a uh, financial collapse and uh, my wife hands me a pregnancy tester and I'm like, Oh man, this is going to be good. So uh, so first baby uh, and I'm, and I'm trying to sort of put out a ton of fires with uh, my real estate projects. Uh, But in the process, I actually had a couple of interesting things happen. I had one piece of one large piece of ground I had sold to a geothermal developer um, and and uh, he wasn't able to make his payments, and I actually had to foreclose on him. And in that, I learned a lot about the geothermal game. Um, and then, of course, you know, sort of how energy works from that perspective and how natural gas prices, you know, whether they were up or down, directly impacted the geothermal market. Um, it was really interesting. So,
0: But you said he, he couldn't make his payments. Was, he, was this owner financed, or was he making payments to a lender, and then you just bought it back from him?
1: I was owner, owner financed.
0: Was that typical for your, for your sales um, when
1: you were transacting, you know, land-wise? Yeah, I would, I would try to be as creative as I could from a finance perspective. So, you know, generally speaking, if they couldn't get big financing, I would try to somehow structure a deal where I was carrying back a, a note. Talk about some terms on the seller note with the, some of the land deals that you did. Oh, man, I've got, I've, I could get, you know, I could give you stories for days on that one. We had, you know, it would all depend on, on who, the, who the buyer was. If it was a big company, um, you know, working on a, on a big project, I would just look at sort of, you know, my short term and long term uh, objectives in that deal. But I you know, I would I would do a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar carry back where I, you know, someone puts down thirty percent and I carry back at eight percent interest for, you know, for five years, uh, or I'll do or interest only with a you know, with a balloon payment. So we would do all sorts of things like that. We would do ten we would do ten year, we would do a 10 year um, deal where uh, for ten years, uh, you know, you know, put down, put down five hundred bucks and and carry back and and uh, you know fully amortized over ten years. So also, we did all sorts of kind of carry back deals.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you guys just got creative with what the seller may have needed, what you guys wanted, and just tried to make it work. Yeah, that's interesting. Back to the mining, you've got this acreage, trying to figure out the highest and best use. Talk about how from the geo- experience with the geothermal developer, you got into that and mining
1: uh so yeah it's interesting so we had one 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 uh chunk of ground particular chunk of ground um in a little town called crescent valley nevada uh we were we were uh i think this is 2011 uh we had a couple of guys I mean, 2010 or 11 we had a couple of guys asked to buy the land and uh you know and then i told them the price and they said we didn't have the money and then he came back two months later and asked us again and, and then finally by the third time i said well what are you guys looking to do and he said we're looking to uh, mine gold, and of course, you know, in my mind, I'm like, you know, I see dollar signs. Um, I didn't see the money pit that that was ahead, of, but I saw dollar signs. <laughs> So in, in hindsight, I've learned, uh, do something you know, don't do something you don't know. Um, but anyway, so, you know, and I, of course, I want to learn the game of mining. And, and uh, so um, I partnered up with these guys. We got, we, we created, we structured a really unique deal. They had a bunch of mining claims. Um, our land was next to mining claims. And then we built a contiguous project of about 4,500 to 5,000 acres. And it was actually happened to be right next to one of the highest grade gold mining projects in the U.S., and so, um, for, so for the next several years, the idea was, how do we get this to, you know, take this property to the next step? Um, and, and what most people do you know, from an gold exploration perspective is actually go public, raise public capital, go stick holes in the ground, and then eventually you'll find either a joint venture partner or someone to acquire you. Um, sadly, we decided to keep it private, um, because we were trying to be, uh, ethical and honest humans in the, in this whole business. And so for us, it was, let's bootstrap this thing. Let's put holes in the ground. So eventually we put some holes in the ground, found some great science, took it to our neighbor, neighbor liked it. Um, we got in, we got into a, uh, to, you know, to a deal and things kind of went sideways, um, in the deal. And so we're still dealing with that as we speak. Um, I'm not going to get into too much. But uh, sadly, uh, it's one of those learning experiences. Um, When I tell people I own a a gold exploration company, it it sounds very, very amazing. But it's in, in hindsight, I would have never done it if I had a chance to understand what was going to happen. So
0: it sounds like you've at least you've learned quite a bit.
1: Yes, I, I definitely haven't, in fact, you know, just touching on it. I know we we haven't got into the conversation yet, but in that in that in that span of time, actually, um, I built Landhub. Um, and I know you're going to ask about that a little bit, but um, but do you want any specifics on that or do you just want to jump jump into that?
0: No, that's a that's a good segue because to your earlier point, the 2000s was when the technology sector started merging. The online with the offline, right? Like you have the Amazons of the world, the e-commerce of the world, um, the market pl- online marketplaces of the world, and so I think that's a perfect segue into how you got into tech as well. So maybe talk about you know your interest in technology and again the opportunity that you saw, took advantage of, and just talk about LandHub and and what became uh, came of
1: that. Perfect. So uh, t- so two thousand nine. Was a very, I suppose, you know, fairly dark time from a business perspective for me, where I, I kind of had to do a, a mental reset. So it was a time for me to really understand tech. Uh, I I had been in real estate for so long, and and I realized that uh, that the new real estate was was page one of Google. And so I really, I really stuck uh, some time into understanding how to build websites. I obviously knew how to write some code uh, for my college days, and so um, I dug into building, you know, WordPress sites and HTML sites back back then, and and uh, and really tried to to figure out what that next layer of technology was in that land game. And so, uh, 2011, 12, um, you know, obviously I knew that there was a bunch of land sites out there that were that were ranked. And so I acquired a company, uh, I think in 2012, called Rural Property Finder. And uh, it had a really unique PHP site that was, that was generating some SEO um, and just hadn't been managed correctly. Um, so I brought on a, um, a pretty smart CTO here in San Diego to kind of help guide me uh, into the next piece of what that was going to be, which my vision was... Um, Real estate in general, um, single family homes, uh, they, they were syndicated on all sorts of sites. Once it hit the MLS, it's syndicated. Well, for land, people didn't usually list with a realtor. They would go to Craigslist or they would go to a marketing website like Land Watch or Lands of America to list a property. And sadly, there was no way to syndicate to all of them. So what I was doing is I was building a back-end marketing platform that was basically a syndication model that, that you could build this HTML file and it was syndicated to all these different websites. So that was the, that was the vision of, uh, of Landhub. Um, in the process, I kind of got into some, some investing in some other local tech companies in San Diego. So I built Landhub. I, I acquired domain, built out Landhub with, with some of the assets from the former website and then just refaced it all. And, uh, and then actually, eventually actually found a buyer for that and uh site's still running today with a, with a team of several employees and, and they're doing well. That's
0: awesome. So, so you ended up selling that business Yep. and talk about, you know, rolling those proceeds into either incubate or
1: were it, was it other startups? Yeah. So, so that's kind of right. That transition was right where I really got into wanting to, you know, these, these few investments that I had made, wanting to bring them all into a single space. Um, I, 2011, 2012, 13, I got into mentoring at a local, um, uh, a local accelerator, nonprofit accelerator here in San Diego called San Diego Sport Innovators. So that for me was sort of the the deep dive into helping and educating myself on sort of the startup process, because I didn't know a whole lot um, in terms of raising capital. I just knew that I had written checks as an angel investor, but not the other side of it. So I really got to dive in, see some of these local startups in San Diego, uh, and be part of a crew of people that were really helping accelerate these sports startups locally. So did that. And uh, at the same time, I built my first small space called Colab Loft, which was the sort of start of Incubate Ventures. And CoLab Loft was about 4,000 square feet. I brought companies in to pay rent, and then I also subsidized other companies um, in exchange for equity um, and or I would make a capital investment in these companies. Um, That then uh, subsequently grew into about a 17,000 square foot space of a building I acquired in Carlsbad a couple of years after that, Um, grew that to about 17 or 18 different companies. And uh, made several investments, at which time I also started a sports technology company. And, uh, and that was sort of my transition out of sort of the, the real estate market and really into focusing on investments. And although I say that I was still heavily involved, like the commercial acquisition of the building, I'm still doing real estate, but it's not my primary job. Um, it was more focusing on the investments I was making and obviously that sports tech company stack that we created within Incubate Ventures.
0: Yeah, I I, I kind of look at the broad arc of your story, and I don't see you as necessarily a real estate guy. I see you as like a company builder, and real estate happened to be your first medium through which you were doing your thing. And so, you're you're still involved, obviously, in the land management uh, business to an extent, yep. right? Yep. But primarily, you focus on incubate ventures and stacked. Tell us about stacked and the market opportunity there, and what led you to start that, that sports app?
1: Yeah, so, uh, so I, I, you know, I didn't get into it too much, but I have a bit of a surfing background. Um, I, I obviously enjoyed surfing a ton in college. As mentioned, I surrounded myself with some great guys. Um, in college, I also had a little surf school um, that then, that then um, became um, a little role in a company called Dekine, where I shared responsibilities of running uh, the regional U.S. surf team for Dekine which is really cool. And, uh, and it was, I was definitely not qualified to run a surf team. I would say I'm mediocre at best at sports. I just, you know, but I did enjoy hanging out with some of the best guys in the world because I loved learning. So, um, but it was cool. It was, a, it was a really unique position. The company was thriving and, uh, and I got to be part of a really cool company that was growing um, in the surf world. And so um, I then also made an, made an investment into a surf brand, um, uh, that I eventually acquired um, called Famous, which is part of our portfolio at Incubate. And, uh, and, and when, I, um, when I got into the sort of tech side of sports, um, we realized that surfing was actually missing technology. And, uh, and so I had met a gentleman that I played basketball with who happened to be a really talented developer from France. And um, I had helped him through that mentoring program. I had mentioned SDSI with a mobile gaming company that he, that he had built called u which was a mobile surf game. Um, very successful game. And then as he parlayed out of that game, him and I came up with the concept of writing a live scoring solution for people that could not afford it. So, so basically creating a, um, a suite of software tools that they could run on the beach or wherever they were to track the scores and then provide um, a way to distribute those on either a website and eventually what became an app. Um, So we built this really unique um, scoring. It's called our event manager, stacked event manager, that basically allows the event to run. Um, You can track, you know, you can track everything from, um, you know, athlete registration all the way up to seating ranking and then obviously controlling live scores and live streaming. And so then we built this consumer facing app where it's basically your LinkedIn as an athlete, where it tracks all your data, you have your own profile, you can follow you can follow other athletes if you're a consumer, um, and just following athletes, or if you're an athlete, you can, you know, add different layers into your profile. And, um, obviously when COVID hit, it was really interesting because we were about to lock in some pretty big deals in a couple of different industries like soccer, um, and, uh, and rugby. And obviously when sports turned off, it was, it was really tough for us because we had to let go of our team. Uh, but then we started getting some interesting calls about a month in going, Hey, you know, we don't have the money to build our own app. Can we use your technology? So what we did starting in April was actually, we began private labeling our technology, but then all of it just—it's cr- it's basically a channel for our app. So all that data goes back to the main app, so you can watch any any event in real time, live streamed or live scored. Um, but then you can go to that 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 organization's app by it by itself. So we are um, working with some very high-level rugby guys at the moment, which is exciting. Um, also in soccer, and this is not just not just U.S. but also global. So really interesting for us, becoming a really unique opportunity, kind of kind of post COVID. So that's that's cool for us.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like an almost like a ESPNU, but but also from everything from youth all the way up to professional um, for both the fan and and the athlete. And then also layering in a a component of like social networking in there as
1: well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, our focus was tier two sports that just didn't have the capital to, uh, to fund fund their own, you know, their own projects. And there just really isn't you know, in in sports in the US is is very fragmented in terms of technology. A lot of big companies were acquiring technology just to own the consumer to sell them some other type of product, rather than to focus on the experience. And so we really came in and said, we're going to take we're going to take the bull by the horns and really focus on the experience for uh, both the athlete and consumer.
0: Got it. Now, are your customers like the leagues for the sports? Or are they the the athletes themselves or
1: the, or the consumer or all the above, all the above. So, so the the league comes in and wants to have an app for his league or organization. Um, And then, and then the athlete wants, you know, the athlete is who we're selling to in the consumer um, by offering, you know, your ability to watch live stream or, you know, any upgrades you put in there Um, you that's, that's who we're targeting. But the, the league and the organization is, is ultimately what we're going after because because they provide our access directly to that athlete and consumer.
0: No, that's a good point. I was actually just thinking about that as I asked the question. It would make sense to try and basically go after the league because if you get the league, you get the content, you get the content, you get the athlete and the consumer. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I got a couple questions on the co-working space and then yeah. we can hit the final questions and, and wrap it up. Yeah. What do you, what in your mind, because I've always been interested in this, I, I was always actually fairly bearish on WeWork just based on their financials and their I mean, just their behavior and mismanagement. Yeah. But I like the concept of coworking. Yeah. And so, what in
1: your mind makes a coworking space stand out? Gosh, that's a tough post-COVID question. Um, I think we're going to be in for uh, some interesting things uh, moving forward. Of course, you know, you've, you've got talks of a COVID vaccine, which. I'm not sure how they've got something ready in, in five months, but hey, whatever, whatever they say. Um, I, I just don't, I think that the post-COVID, in fact, I would call it COVID working, not co-working, um, is, going to be, is going to be a challenge. Uh, you know, I love the concept of, uh, of working creatively in open spaces um, and collaborating. I think that the problem now is we got a, we've got a big roadblock in the way. Um, I have, I know several friends that own coworking, um, spaces that are all, uh, filing bankruptcy. So sadly, um, you know, the model, the model, the WeWork model doesn't really count. I've been following that model for several years, uh, was never a big fan. Uh, it, it was, it's, it was a sort of a premium or, you know, premium model of Regis. Um, I, I called it a Regis on steroids, uh, with really pretty glass windows, but at the end of the day, you know your price per square foot was was way too high, and eventually you start pricing people out going and pushing them back to their own space so um and I, and it, and it happened several times, and i cause they were giving away free rent you know here in San Diego at some of the rework facilities, and people were walking away after a year because they got great deals because they were they were pushing their rents up five five or six x so um, I, I'm not very bullish on coworking moving forward, to be honest with you. I loved the, the concept for several years. I just think it's going to struggle uh, post COVID because people would rather now not take a chance and work from home than go into a collaborative environment, in my opinion.
0: So you think working remotely and working from home is, is to a large part here to stay versus a more of a collaborative working space?
1: Yeah, you know, I could be wrong. I just don't know how the whole COVID vaccine and and people's comfort uh, is going to play out in all of this. I don't know. I just feel like we've definitely there's a there's a subset of the population that's very fearful that you know that that walking into a co-working space is going to you know uh, elevate the risk of getting COVID. Um, and sadly, obviously, we've proven with with statistics that that's not necessarily the case. Um, that that you are you know that if you're six feet apart and there's good airflow in a space, whether it's indoors or outdoors, that you're going to be okay. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, I, I just don't know where, where the mindset is around all of that and, and where it's going to go, but I'm not very bullish at the moment.
0: I'm not much for putting my head in the sand, but when it comes to the modern day media, that's pretty much the approach that I take. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man. I've got one more question on the consumer brands that you deal with. Talk about in your mind, what makes a good consumer brand? I know you said that you, you've purchased and you own a surfing brand. Do you own any other brands? And in your mind, what makes a good, wholesome, profitable, sustainable, moody consumer brand?
1: That's a that's a that's a loaded question, um, Gahalie. In today's day and age, uh, what what it takes to be a, a brand? Gosh, I mean, it's moving at warp speed, right? um 4 years ago if you were really good at building instagram content um, that was how you built a brand um today uh it seems like it's more politically driven if you pick a political side in building your brand generally you have a little bit more of a of an advantage if you take a, if you take the wrong side i think it tends to be um very impactful from a negative perspective um you know, it's really interesting. I, 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 you know, work closely with several um, influencers from sports to, um, you know, to Hollywood. And it's interesting learning from, you know, from them sort of like how, how they're paid by um, by marketing or what you know what people spend to get an influencer to say something or do something on their social media for a product. But um, you know, I think that we're we're gonna get into just some interesting things. You know, TikTok, I think TikTok, there's a risk that TikTok goes away. Um, you know, I know I know several influencers that have big TikTok followings that that, you know, be sure they're nervous, but at the end of the day, they've built a significant following on other platforms. But but it's interesting. I mean all this stuff is, I feel like it's so it's so hard to rely on somebody else's platform. It was like eBay. If eBay went away, I, how do I sell land? Uh, you know, that was always sort of my fear is that at any moment in time, everything we rely upon, if the internet goes away, how do we do business? Um, so if these different platforms go away, you know, marketing today is built around social media. So, so it's a very interesting time. And especially now because everyone's at home and they're consuming by not going out and seeing things at the store because they don't go to the store, they see it online. And so, um, so it's, it's, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it, it is going to be, you know, trying to sort of even look 12 months from now at what, what could happen or what's going to happen from a, from, from a brand building perspective. I don't even know. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. That you make some good points that nowadays, the consumer brand depends on the social media marketing and the social media to marketing depends on the influencers and the influencers depend, it depends on where they fall potentially in the political spectrum or what they've accomplished already and, and whether they've got a big following and how do they get there? And so there's all these contingencies where if one link in the chain, if it seems to break, you know, maybe the brand breaks, right? So, Correct. And, and it is interesting, uh, your, your last point that everyone's at home, looking at this content and all the brands are out there pumping this stuff out. So, you know, it's, how do you stand out? Right. Yep. So and, and, and just to
1: add, and just to add to that, you know, it, it, you know, the, the modern day consumer that's called 16 to 25, they're basically numb to marketing. They are, there's nothing that phases them. There's nothing that, so I think that brand loyalty is going to eventually sort of go away, right? Things are going to be cool for a year. And then what's the next cool thing? And I think that that's sort of what's happened right back in the day when we didn't have social media, you know, you stuck with a brand for life. Like you loved a brand. You, you know, if you were, if you were all about a Ford truck, that was it. I'm driving Fords only or a Chevy guy, whatever it was, you were all about that today. I think we're so bombarded with content and our ability to process all of it has just made us numb to marketing. So, um, and I've seen this big time in these younger, in the younger generation. And it scares me a bit because I kind of wonder like how, how our brands, are we going to go to a world, a Walmart world where it doesn't matter what it is. It's just the cheapest thing in the room and that's what we're buying.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Well, maybe a word of encouragement there. I do think one thing that I have seen is, is super niche brands that are high quality, you know, 99% of the people aren't going to care about you because they're not looking for what your product or service offers. But the people that are in that niche, if you're high quality, I actually saw something from Benedict Evans, who's a, uh, an ex-VC guy. He said that on on Google, people were searching for higher quality things, not cheapest things over time. Absolutely. So some, something
1: that's just an interesting tidbit there. Yeah. Um, so. And I and I and I 100% agree with you. I think the biggest challenge is marketing that higher quality, right? How do how do you know that that Chinese product um, isn't the same quality, or that that other company is higher quality? And 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 to get there, that's a that's an expensive um, sort of marketing cost uh, that you've got to build into your product. So that's the challenge, right? Like that's, I think the challenge we're all facing is like, can you can you provide enough content to to convince the consumer that your product really is a higher quality. Um, so it's, it, again, we're marketing, marketing 101. Uh, we're, we're in like marketing 1 million one right now because it's changed so fast uh, in the last 20 years. It's just really hard to, to see where it all goes.
0: I agree, yeah, it's, it, it, things are changing super fast and COVID hasn't done anything to slow anything down. No. All right, let's wrap up. Let's get to the final questions. So. What personal values or beliefs are most important to you, and how do they inform your day-to-day business?
1: Great question. Uh, You know, one thing I've kind of always grown up with sort of a a spiritual root when it comes to business and life. Um, I've always been a super ethical person in business. I won't do anything that sort of crosses that um, that ethical boundary for me. So if it's gray, I'm usually not touching it. Um, I just I kind of have this thing where if it's a win-win-win for everyone, I'm I'm happy to get involved. But uh, and, I, and I'm very careful if I do business with a partner, um, there has to be a necessity for me to want to do business with a partner and a trust factor. I've been burned many times over the years um, by being an honest guy. Um, but but at the same time, I've also learned a lot of hard lessons. So I would say that you know just being being sort of spiritually rooted in, in um, you know in, in, a, in a in a biblical way, I just I just struggle sometimes um, with ideas that come across my desk. that go, man, that sounds really attractive, but I can't do it.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that takes some that I commend you because that takes some serious discipline to look at something that it is attractive and and still say no. I think that's probably one of the biggest secrets to success that I've, I've gotten advice on is you gotta learn how to say no. And I, I will admit I'm pretty terrible at that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning. What advice would you give yourself before starting out as an entrepreneur?
1: What advice, that's a good question too. Um, I think that I would, I would definitely say, first off, obviously fail fast and fail forward. Uh, I think that take as many risks as you can when you can, because those, you know, the the risk, the risk changes as you get, uh, as you get to a point where you're having uh, a family, wife and children, you begin to look at things a little bit differently uh, and begin to be a little more risk averse. But I would say take, take the risks because you can um, certainly as you're, as a younger person, which is what I did, um, but never stop taking risks, never stop asking questions, never stop learning.
0: I like the last piece, never stop learning. That's great. What's one thing you would have done differently now that you're a few
1: decades into your journey as an entrepreneur and investor? Um, you know, I would have probably, when I was really young um, in, in business, I didn't surround myself with a mentor. I, you know, I don't think any, even if I had a mentor back then, I wouldn't know if they would have known how to deal with my crazy brain um, of buying and selling land on eBay. But, uh, but I would have said, find a mentor um, and, and lean on somebody that you can trust I didn't really have that growing up uh, in the, in, in, you know, with reserve land because um, I just wasn't out there seeking it. And in hindsight, had I done that, I probably would have had an exit pretty early on with that. Um, And so, you know, I would say just, just find, find people you can trust, let them mentor you and, you know, let, and, and trust what they're saying.
0: That's good. What person would you most like to meet who's
1: alive today? And what would you want to talk about? wow man oh man that's a really tough question I'm gonna say oh dude I can't I can't say it I can't say it Benton can't do it I was gonna say I'm just gonna say it I'll do Bill Gates I would love to sit with Bill Gates I think he's probably in a bunker in New Zealand right now but I would love (laughs) to sit with him right now and just ask him why he's so involved in the vaccine process of COVID? It just seems so interesting. And he had mentioned he's he's been very successful in this nonprofit world of creating vaccination. So I just would love to learn the business side of it. Why he's so interested in it? Um, so that that'd probably be the guy, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, if
0: you're listening, <laughs> you can't be involved in any of the current startup industries that you are that you're currently involved or invested in what other startup sub industries or sub verticals would you
1: be involved in got it you know i think uh, I'm, I'm a marketing guy through and through uh, so i think that if i was to do something uh, i think my next thing would probably be a content creation or a marketing agency I come up with some off the wall ideas sometimes probably some that would do terrible, but others that would, I think would do really well. So I think it's probably what I do. I'd focus on, you know, helping probably influencers uh, and, and also just work on, you know, sort of content creation.
0: I love it. What's the biggest challenge in your life personally and professionally
1: and how are you attempting to tackle it? Personally, that's a great question. Personally, I, I have a 12 year old son who is autistic and or on on the spectrum. Uh, He's a he's a very challenging person for me personally. Uh, And raising kids is hard. Um, But I but it's a it's a challenge that I, you know, that I embrace and I love and my wife and I really focus on trying to be better parents and trying to raise God fearing boys that will be really um, successful uh, once they become adult men. So um, so that's kind of you know the the personal challenge there is just sort of raising kids and and just you know putting the pressure on myself to be the best dad that I can be. Uh, professionally, right now it's just it's just getting better at putting out fires because there's a lot of COVID fires at the moment, and I'm really trying to kind of hone in my skill set on putting those fires out and doing doing so in a in a way that's beneficial. How can
0: someone listening to the podcast add value to? your business or businesses?
1: Man, I, you know what? To, to be honest with you, I, you know, to add value, to add value would be to add value to society, uh, is, is to love others, to help others, to give back. Uh, you know, I think that one, one, of the, one of the biggest things I learned was I didn't really have an agenda in life. Uh, my agenda was, was basically just, just to give. And obviously, in return, I've been given a lot. So I, I would always say, you know, to, to add value to what I do. Um, I would just say, you know, add value to yourself by giving back, which then adds value to society in general.
0: That's a great way to wrap up. Duran, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We'll talk soon. That was good, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co, that's circleofcompetence.co, to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.